Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Karras. Welcome. This is Elaine Miller Karras, and I and this is Resiliency Within. I am so honored to have two um, important guests on the show today. Dr. Ray Dorsey and Dr. Michael Oaken are they are some of the world's experts on Parkinson's disease. And we're going to do a, a deeper dive into um, this condition today. They are going to share with us um, a book that they've written. And I'm hoping that you all go out and buy it. And I want to tell you a little bit more about them first before we start talking about our subject today. So Dr. Dorsey is the David M. Levy Professor of Neurology at the University of Rochester. His research has been published in the leading neurology, medical, and economic journals and has been featured at NPR and in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. Previously, he directed the Parkinson's Disease Division at John Hopkins Medicine and consulted for McKinney and Company. He is the co-author with Dr. I hope I'm going to say these words correct, Dr. Bloom, Dr. Scher, and of course, Dr. Oaken, our other guest today, of Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action. And so this is the book that we're hoping that you're going to go out and purchase after you hear them speaking. So, Dr. Aachen is um, the Adelaide Lackner Professor and Chair of Neurology at the University of Florida. He is one of the world's leading Parkinson's researchers and has advanced surgical treatments for the disease. He is a National Medical Director of the Parkinson's Foundation, the country's largest Parkinson's disease patient advocacy group. He is a prolific writer with over 500 publications and, and the author of the book, Parkinson's Treatment. 10 Secrets to a Happier Life, which has been translated in 20 languages. This is wonderful as well. So welcome, my guests, as we get started. Um, I want to just say what's on your mind right now as we're getting started before I ask you the first question. Anything that you guys want to talk about just briefly before we start getting into Parkinson's? Well, Ray, yes. we're both looking at each other saying, now, there's so much on my mind. So I'll, I'll tell you something that's present for me is... Um, just the amplification, you know, of our voices and just how important it is when we talk about topics like Parkinson, where there's just this inevitability that, you know, this disease is growing, it's growing so quickly that if we don't sum our voices, if we don't amplify, if we don't come together, uh, if we don't start having these dialogues that, that, um, that we're really not going to move the needle forward. And so, What's present for me right now is, you know, summating, bringing together, you know, great dialogue and just getting people thinking about these things that, that are going to be important, you know, the inevitabilities. What, what about you, Ray? What's present for you? So I get fired up because, you know, 200 people, uh, 200 Americans were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease today. 100 people died uh, with the condition today. It's the world's fastest growing brain disease is growing in virtually every region of the world, uh, uh, every place that your listeners are today. Parkinson's disease is likely uh, increasing. And really, to date, we have not generated an effective uh, action plan uh, to address uh, what's growing faster than even uh, Alzheimer's disease. 
Well, it's it's very alarming. And I know when I read um, about the two of you, and I really wanted to have you on the show, it was learning about what's happening in terms of the increase in Parkinson's all over the world. So I want to really start talking about what is Parkinson's, first of all, and then get into some other questions about what you both think about what are ways not only to prevent Parkinson's, but what are some of the things that are happening right now that can help people that are maybe grappling with Parkinson's, or maybe they don't even know that they could have Parkinson's. Maybe there's some symptoms happening to them, and um, you might be able to illuminate you know, what people need to look for. So let's start out with the question of what is Parkinson's? So which one of you would like to give us a, a, a bit of an um, explanation of what it is? I want to learn from the expert, Dr. Oaken, Michael. <laughs> All right. He tossed well, that one to you, to, Michael. He tossed that I'm one. happy to oblige. Um, you know, it, it turns out that, that Parkinson disease is, um, is it is a, a disorder and it's more of a syndrome. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, it's that you can have a whole bunch of different symptoms and we think of it as a brain disease, but actually it's more than a brain disease. And so I'm gonna say a couple of things here that I hope will be mind blowing for people that are listening. So, so tuck up, pay attention here because this is, this is more than you think. It's not just people that are walking around shaking. It's not just men. It's, it's, it's not just one race or one color. So what we have is we have a, a disease that affects not only the loss of dopamine, which is a chemical in the brain, an important chemical in the brain, but degeneration. Degeneration means that cells and their connections are starting to kind of die off and not, uh, not be as connected. Those pipes aren't really firing as well. And so we're, we're, we have a degenerative condition. We're slowly, you're losing cells, you're losing connections, but across multiple things that involve not just the motor system. So those are things like tremors, stiffness, slowness, but also other brain circuits that are involved in things like mood and anxiety and apathy. And in fact, Parkinson has over 20 symptoms, motor, tremor, stiffness, slowness, non-motor, depression, anxiety, apathy. And some people have said that Parkinson is the most complex disease in clinical medicine. When you look at all the different symptoms and you look at all the different potential treatments, medicine, surgical, and behavioral, but here's the mind-blowing part, okay? Elaine, you're waiting for the mind-blowing part. Here's the mind-blowing part, okay, here it is. When we wrote this paper recently for a journal called Lancet, we had asked the editors to allow us to change the title from Parkinson's disease to Parkinson's diseases, okay? Of course, we didn't win that battle, but the point of it was, as Boston Bloom, who's also a co-author on the ending Parkinson's book, he made the argument that Parkinson isn't actually one disease. And so there are multiple different genes that can cause Parkinson's, there are environmental exposures, and then the majority of people, we're not sure exactly all of the causes that contribute to Parkinson's disease. And so, you know, four out of five people, they might come to you, Elaine, and have a tremor, but one out of five, that's 20%, aren't going to have a tremor. So not everybody's going to look exactly the same, can be all ages. If you go to Ray Dorsey's waiting room, you might see somebody that's 85. If you come to my waiting room, you might see somebody who's 15. Okay, so, you know, really, it becomes as young as, as young as 15. As you age. That's right. So you can see young people. And so Parkinson. Is it a brain disease? Yes. Is it more than a brain disease? Yes, Elaine, it is. Does it affect other systems like the skin and the autonomic nervous system outside the brain? And, and do we see it in the, in the gastrointestinal tract? 
We see it in all of these systems. It's, it's actually present within us. So it's more than just a brain disease and it's multiple circuits. And, the, and you can have multiple syndromes with many causes. So it is something that, um, that is, uh, is your listeners should be uh, aware that any of these symptoms can happen. And if you're, if you're not sure if you have Parkinson, you should definitely check with a neurologist or your general doc. So, um, Michael, I'm, you know, noticing as you're talking, um, those of you can't see him, but he's very passionate. He's moving his hands. And this is something I can see that you just so believe in your core. I'm, I'm wondering for both of you, you know, why Parkinson's? Why you as a physician decided to study and be one of the leading spokespersons for Parkinson's? So why don't I start with Ray first and then I'll come back, back to you, Michael. Um, so uh, both my parents are psychiatrists, so I like to say I rebelled and I became a neurologist. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, we like Parkinson's because you can make people better. And then um, I've gotten fired up because when I see Parkinson's disease, I see a preventable disease uh, for the vast majority of individuals. Uh, I see a disease that's debilitating. Uh, that's the 14th leading cause of death that has doubled in the last 25 years. And if we don't change our course, we'll double again in the coming 25 years. I think it's fundamentally for the vast majority of people with Parkinson's disease, a preventable disease, just like lung cancer is a preventable disease. Type two diabetes is a preventable disease. Hypertension is a preventable disease. Car accidents are preventable. Uh, Parkinson's disease is largely preventable. There are numerous environmental factors uh, tied to the industrial revolution, including air pollution, certain pesticides, industrial chemicals like trichloroethylene and heavy metals that are all linked uh, to the disease. If we address these preventable causes, we can prevent future generations from ever having to deal with this debilitating disease. So I really want to talk more about the prevention because when you, you know, mention the different toxins, you know, what are the industries where people need to be, you know, aware of that this is something that could be impacting you because we can prevent that. But we first have to know that we can prevent it. I mean, honestly, I feel like I'm a fairly educated person, but I thought, oh, well, once you got Parkinson's, I mean, it's not preventable. So we need to hear more about that. We need to broadcast that wide and wide throughout the world, it sounds like, from what you're saying. Absolutely. Okay. So, Michael, how about you? Why did, why, why did you choose Parkinson? What was it about your life journey that brought you to this? Yeah. So, um, I appreciate the question. I don't mean to shock you again, but my, my primary goal in life was to become a teacher, a history te- teacher. So, I studied history, and I come from a Jewish family, and at some point, and I had to get a job of my my parents said, you know, you're a Jewish kid, so it's got to be doctor, lawyer, or accountant, right? And uh, I chose doctor, and I thought I would go out into America and be a black bag family practice doc, take care of people that that um, really need help. And to make a long story short, um, when I went on to medical school, I was busy studying who was going to take these hills and why, and all the reading all these great humanities texts and. And, um, and then I started medicine and I fell in love with the brain and it just made a lot of sense to me. And I realized my entire life, I was always very curious as to why people moved in certain ways. And when people got different, um, you know, ailments, you know, even people that you would see, they would move in funny ways and have tremors and stiffness and slowness and ticks. And, and, um, and I became very curious as to why that is. And so I've spent a good part of my career trying to understand the circuits that underpin, you know, that are, are responsible for the movement. So it's been the why question for me on that side, but along the way, um, I, you know, I wanted to be a teacher and I love treating uh, folks with disease. And as Ray said, we've been able to help so many people with 
the right, you know, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary care. We've been involved with a lot of surgeries and, and um, medicines and, and just helping people with a better basic understanding and um, trying to amplify our voices to, to get ahead of this disease. And so, so it's, um, it's, it's definitely not only a passion, mm-hmm. but I would say that um, Ray and myself and the other co-authors were, were, uh, were on a mission here to, to try to, to, try to r- really wake up the world on Parkinson. Well, and for both of you, I'm not only hearing your mission and your passion, but I'm going to say compassion because of wanting to really get the word out so that it doesn't affect uh, our future generations if we can prevent it. So my next question has to do um, with how has your um, lived experience, I guess, why did you decide to write Ending Parkinson's Disease, the book, A Prescription for Action? Is it based on all the things you've said so far? Is there something more about it? There's a great book, uh, How to Survive a Plague, by David France, which uh, highlighted how HIV activists uh, changed the course of HIV. So, you know, 40 years ago, there was an unknown, uniformly fatal uh, condition that was caused by a virus that hadn't been characterized. And, and, and there was an absence of a federal response in the United States and largely around the world. In that vacuum, a group of activists uh, adopted a model of silence equals death and changed the course of HIV in 15 years. We had protease inhibitors that, and means for preventing uh, uh, HIV. And today, HIV is not only treatable, it's preventable. And there are millions of people, including people listening, including possibly Michael and me, and potentially you, who don't have HIV because of the courage of uh, people who were affected with the condition uh, that made their voices heard and changed the course of the condition. I said, we need to do that for Parkinson's disease. Right. Um, you know, 1.2 million Americans have the disease. Probably up to about 10 million people around the world have Parkinson's disease. And there's really, despite the efforts of some prominent individuals like uh, Michael J. Fox and others, there's been insufficient uh, attention uh, directed at, at Parkinson's disease. If you look at research funding, um, it's Parkinson's affects as many Americans as HIV, but funding for Parkinson's disease is about one-tenth uh, the rate it is really? for HIV. one-tenth. One-tenth. Yeah, so that's why, you know, in your postscript of the book, you talk about this being a pandemic. Um, You know, HIV, I mean, we've been dealing with COVID-19 for the last two years. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, we, uh, Michael says we need an an Operation Warp Speed uh, for Parkinson's disease. And we've seen that what's that done for COVID. We have uh, highly effective vaccines that prevent people from getting it. And we have uh, highly effective treatments that can prevent people from getting uh, very sick uh, if they do get infected. We've seen what uh, substantial public investment has changed the course of uh, HIV uh, from what, you know, I think 30 million deaths a year uh, yeah, at its peak. Um, so we, if we can do that for HIV, if we can do that for COVID-19, uh, why can't we do that for Parkinson's disease? Why we can't do that for Alzheimer's disease? The investments we're making are grossly insufficient uh, to meet the challenge in front of us. And almost none of it, almost none of it is being directed at preventing uh, the disease, which is the ultimate uh, way to addressing well, I, diseases. I'm kind of stunned by what you're talking about. Why hasn't it happened? I mean, here it's, I mean, clearly there's there's the the clinical evidence. You're, you're writing in journals like Lancet, which is one of the best journals in the world. Um, and why hasn't there been the funds pushed towards it? What do you I guys you think to... about that? It political? What What is it? Yeah. Yeah, so you know, I think that um, that uh, you know this is a really important point. And, and let me just back up and say that that you had asked about you know how the project came together, and and so 
Ray Dorsey is in New York, Boston Blooms, and Nyman Jim in the Netherlands. And, um, and at the time, Todd Scherer was the CEO of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And, um, and I think each one of us brought something different and unique to the project. And when you put a lot of people in a room and you really start to say, we got we to gotta think about this in a, in a different way, you know, I, I, I believe that, that that's why this project became so special in our hearts and, and has, you know, taken on, you know, a life of its own and, and, and growing a grow, grassroots organization grew out of it called the PD Avengers and, and, uh, um, and it's really been uh, a, an important journey, an important road that we're all walking on together and, and learning together. And as we listen to more people and as we think about what are the formative problems. And as the group of us got together, it became obvious as we dug into the history of other diseases, right? You, you don't go into this and say, okay, how do you end Parkinson's disease without saying, well, how do they do it? somewhere else right and so we we had this sense of like why why not look and and see who else has done this before and so we took a look at hiv we took a look at um at a disease called polio and we looked at breast cancer and of course this was all pre-pandemic and the original title of the book here's a fun one for people listening was the parkinson pandemic which um which is uh something that we've been talking about here for eight or nine years in different publications. Um, there's several publications out, you know, about this and making the idea that pan means all, demos means people. And that even though we talk about infectious diseases in terms of, you know, them being bacteria and viruses and things, those are the things that we naturally gravitate to as being pandemic. Um, it's actually other things can have you know, pandemic proportions uh, as well. And so we agree with the idea that we should be talking about these infectious causes like COVID-19 as the pandemics. But when you look at the definitions of a pandemic, something like Parkinson and its growth really meet those definitions. And so we have to consider that as a whole picture. And as we came together, we looked at HIV, Elaine, and we looked at um, all of these different you know, diseases. We looked at polio. We looked at the vaccine. We realized that there was a formula, and the formula was pretty simple. It was P for prevent, okay, A for advocate, C for care, and T for develop treatments, a pact. That's what other people have done. And the question that you asked, like, why have we not, like, why are we getting one-tenth of the funding? Why, why, why? These are the important questions we need to be asking. In my opinion, it's because we haven't hit that inflection point, you know, and HIV hit it. You know, they had, you know, some very effective sit-in protests, you know, at the FDA. Um, we saw it in polio with Eddie Cantor and FDR and the White House and that campaign, um, so we have a grassroots movement now going in Parkinson and, you know, Ray and I and boss have spent, you know, our entire careers over 20 years each uh, working on this issue, but we still haven't reached that, that, that point where we're going to see the, the inflection and the explosion. If we want to do it, I personally believe we have to catalyze this reaction. It's going to happen, but why not have it happen sooner rather than later? Because 
if you sit and you wait and you keep listening to Ray Dorsey and the and the statistics and things that come out of his lab and the things that he writes about, <laughs> yeah. you you realize we better speed up here. We can't. We're we're well, it's, we're it's, getting, it's scary yeah. to think about it. Yeah. I, I, I'm just this is a curiosity question. Does the Centers for Disease Control have an arm that looks at Parkinson's? I know they have TB and, of course, you know, the COVID-19 and the viruses. Um, is that under their umbrella or not? They report some statistics that, you know, for example, uh, Parkinson's disease is now the 14th leading uh, cause of death. Uh, the World Health Organization is taking a deeper uh, look uh, at Parkinson's disease and they're putting forth a paper that's coming out, I think, in Michael's journal um, uh, outlining a plan of action. But um, as long as there's complacency, as long as we don't hold people accountable, as long as we uh, give money and not uh, demand accountability, um, uh, things don't change. And uh, people with HIV, they woke up really quickly. Uh, Larry Kramer, one of the, the late Larry Kramer, uh, one of the founders of uh, uh, ACT UP, he says, if we don't get our act together, we're all going to blank die. And, you know, they got the message really loud and clearly um, in the 1930s. Um, uh, Michael alluded to their um, March of Dimes, you know, changed the course of polio. People Dude. got tired of, you know, having their kids not being able to swim and having community centers closed in the summer. And they mailed in their dimes, uh, raised millions of dollars. And 16 years later, we had a vaccine that changed the course of polio. Most of us live in a world that's largely free of uh, polio. Um, you know, in the 1980s, mothers got tired of their kids uh, dying in car accidents on prom, right? We just had prom this uh, past weekend in many, at least many parts of the United States. And, you know, social, uh, drinking and driving is socially unacceptable uh, to the vast majority of uh, teenagers. And that took some brave women, uh, largely women, saying, you know, my kids have died uh, with this. Uh, the key to addressing drunk driving isn't to have better trauma centers and better spinal cord injury programs. It's the key is to stop drinking and driving. And they made it really loud and made it really unac socially unacceptable to drink and drive. And that's, you know, changed the course for millions, thousands of us, not just in the United States, but around the world. We need to do the same thing for HIV, for, uh, for Parkinson's for disease. Parkinson's. We yeah. need to do the same for Alzheimer's disease. We need to do for cancer. We can't accept that these conditions are inevitable. They are not inevitable. They are not natural consequences of aging. They are unnatural consequences well, and, and you said something really important. I'm sitting here going, why don't, why didn't I know about this? I mean, I've certainly, you know, seen, um, you know, Muhammad Ali and, and uh, um, Michael um, J. Fox talking about this, but there's something that's really important. I think in terms of like paradigm shifts is when I think it, when I thought about Parkinson's before learning about and talking to you both is I always thought about, Oh, well, it's probably ha happens to older people. Maybe there was a head injury. I mean, this is my, my thinking, of course, I mean, I always thought that, well, Muhammad Ali probably had Parkinson's because of all the head injuries because of being, you know, a, a fighter. And then, you know, I didn't know about, you know, Michael J. Fox, but you just see what I'm saying that there are, I have erroneous thinking about what causes Parkinson's. And so that almost would have to shift for me to believe, which is hopefully what we're doing today to say, oh no, that's not, that's not the case, Elaine. There's a 15 year old that's in Ray's office. There's a 29 year old like Michael J. Fox that was, that was diagnosed. It's, it's yes, people that are older get it, but people that are younger get it too. And I don't think that's necessarily known by everyone. Do you? I mean, from what you're saying, I don't think that's that's necessarily known. Which I want to be one of your advocates. Okay, I'm on board. You got me. So, um, so any any comment about what I just said? I'll, I'll do one, and then I'll, I'll return it to Michael. So, um, 
the analogy I like to draw is to smoking and lung cancer. So you don't smoke a cigarette and develop lung cancer the next day. You smoke cigarettes for some period of time, then 25 years or longer later, you develop uh, the disease. So uh, for Parkinson's disease, it's not smoking. Uh, in fact, smoking might decrease your risk, but um, it's certain uh, exposures to air pollution, uh, pesticides, and uh, this chemical called trichloroethylene. I'll just show the simple uh, thing. And then it can be 10 years, 20, 30 years later. And just like if everyone died at age 40, no one would develop lung cancer. If everyone died at age 40, no few, few people would develop Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease does increase with age, but we need time for the disease to take time to spread uh, and to unfold. Uh, some of the earliest symptoms of Parkinson's disease, for example, are loss of smell, suggesting where disease might begin. And it only after years have passed does it eventually get to the parts of the brain that can, call, that can control tremor and slowness of movement and later spread to the parts of the brain that cause dementia and hallucinations. So do you think then some of the symptoms that happen in, in, in the beginning, I mean, not to say that losing your, your sense of smell isn't benign, but it isn't some of the more serious symptoms that, that um, affect your, your functioning. I mean, do you think that's part of the reason why there isn't this, you know, kind of let's rise to, the, to action and, and, and do something about this? Well, I think that that's the fact that you lose your sense of smell, I think, speaks to where the disease might be beginning. Um, Dr. Oaken has suggested early on that Parkinson's disease isn't just a brain disease. And this very smart German pathologist named Heiko Brock said in 2003 that Parkinson's disease may begin outside the brain. And almost everything I've described to you are environmental exposures that are inhaled. So the nose may be the front door and it might be an open front door by which these, path these chemicals or environmental exposures are entering into the brain causing a loss of smell, causing pathology of the disease to begin in the smell centers of the brain before spreading to other parts wow. of the brain. Wow. So, you know, this is another question. I don't know if you can answer this or not, but also I would think that the companies that are creating these toxins, do they know that these chemicals that they're producing are causing this kind of harm? What has happened with like environmental protection acts about these kinds of exposures? You want to start, Michael? <laughs> yeah, so... We didn't um, talk about that question, but now a, that's a well, busy question a, on my is mind a, right now. This is a great question. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's pretty loaded, and it, it sort of reminds me, if you look at the history of uh, smoking, right? And oh, it, yeah, and, it was terrible you know, in the beginning, right? Sure, and you, and you go through that, and, you know, people said no, they didn't know, you know, and, and you know, there were, you know, decades this went on, and, and then as the thread you know, got pulled and you, you began to kind of look and the curtain got, uh, got opened, you, you saw behind that they knew more than they realized. And so, I, you know, I, then, then people appreciated it. And I, I think that it's fair to say that, you know, maybe 20 years ago, it might be okay to say maybe on some of the pesticides and things. But if you, you know, do the statistics and you do the math and you publish a whole bunch of papers and they're from different groups and different continents and, and, and they're all coming up with the same, you know, what's called odds ratios. That would be like if you went to Las Vegas and you, and you placed a bet, you know, how much, you know, you know, could you, you know, maybe be assured that you might win something. And once those odd, odds ratios go up above one, and some of these chemicals, they go to two, three, four, five, you know, and more, you know, times the risk. As those have been sailing up paper after paper, you know, we begin to say, hey, you know what? 
you know, like you can keep denying it or you can do something and, um, and we haven't acted. Okay, so I want to talk more about this. We're, we're going to take a short break, but we will be back to talk with um, um, Dr. Dorsey and Dr. Oaken about this very important subject of how we may be able to prevent Parkinson's. And when I'm hearing about what you just talked about, oh my goodness, um, we could do something about it. We will be back in a few moments and we will continue this very important discussion. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller-Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm with Dr. Ray Dorsey and Dr. Michael Oken. This is Resiliency Within, and I'm Elaine Miller-Karras. We are talking about a very, very important subject today, and this is Parkinson's. But we just started talking about advocacy. And, you know, they didn't actually say this in these questions to me, but I'm going to call you foremost advocates about trying to change the world and the world's thinking 
about um, about Parkinson's and prevention, and very importantly, how we support also people with Parkinson's. And that's some of the some other questions I want to ask you in just a second. But we were talking about. Um, companies that uh, create these chemicals. And Michael, if you want to say, if there's anything more you want to say, we had to kind of go to break about, um, there's, it sounds like there's lots of evidence, very compelling yeah, evidence so. that shows that these chemicals do um, um, have an effect on causing Parkinson's. Yeah, I think it becomes harder and harder over time, Elaine, you know, to, to you know, deny the, the science if you have multiple papers from multiple continents and multiple groups showing the same thing. So if we start to see pesticides, if we start to see TCE, we start to see certain chemicals, certain Superfund sites, we start to see these things adding up and they're adding up, you know, with, with convergent data, data that's coming together, agreeing, even when it's from different regions and different groups and it's, it's becoming replicated it becomes much harder in my mind for us to walk away from it. And, you know, Ray always talks about the Paraquat story and, and, um, and it's probably worth you sharing that with, with everyone, Ray. Yeah, so Paraquat is this pesticide created in the 1950s. Uh, so think about who drives cars or flies airplanes from the 1950s, but we use pesticide from the 1950s. It's considered the most toxic herbicide ever created. It, it kills the weeds that Roundup doesn't. It's been used to commit homicide and suicide. Over 30 countries, including China, have banned uh, the chemical, but the United States still permits its use. Um, For your listeners in England, England bans the use of the pesticide, but still produces it and exports it to Brazil, Mexico, and the United States. Uh, I'll let your listeners decide if that's a just uh, (laughs) policy or not. Um, and it's been associated with an inc- with 150% increased risk of developing uh, Parkinson's disease. Research done 20 years ago at, at our medical center has showed that when you feed the paraquat to rice laboratory uh, animals, they develop the clinical and pathological features of uh, Parkinson's disease. So there's a little reason that we need to be using <laughs> well, this. As you're telling me about this, I mean, do you feel sometimes you hit a wall with the environmental protections from the federal government that seems like, I always think of, oh, they're out there protecting us. But what you're telling me, if that's still coming, if that we're still producing it in the United States and it's been here since the 50s, that means someone's turning a deaf ear or am I getting this wrong? We're importing it. Um, uh, so if you can talk about our trade policies, why are we importing uh, toxic chemicals that increase your rate of uh, Parkinson's disease. Why do why when we know that farmers are at increased risk of Parkinson's disease, do we do this? Why do we know when individuals who drink well water, which is often contaminated by pesticide uh, runoff, and one out of every eight Americans uh, approximately gets their water from private wells, why are we allowing this to continue? So do you have the answer to that, Ray? You know, because we're not making our voices heard. Where, where's the million person march on Washington to demand that we get rid of uh, toxic chemicals that are fueling the rise of Parkinson's disease, that are fueling the rise of autism, that are fueling the rise of cancer, and a whole range of other conditions. So you just you know mentioned autism, for example. We know there's an incredible increase in the last, what, 25 years? So do you think that the toxins that you're talking about could also have something to do with that? I, I think we know we're, we're not just beyond, we're beyond thinking, as, as Michael uh, indicated. I think in some cases we're in the point of knowing. So there's another pesticide that the EPA did ban last year called chlorpyrifos uh, that is estimated to cost 25 million children in New York City, 17 million IQ points. 
Um, you know, <sighs> these are real, uh, the, many of these things are nerve toxins. Uh, many of uh, them uh, damage, are, are designed to damage uh, nerve cells in, the, in animals, and many of them are damaging nerve cells uh, in humans. Why we continue to use them when we have safer alternatives, why we use them in, indiscriminately when we can use them more wisely, uh, those are uh, questions that we should be asking ourselves. I mean, are, do you think it has something to do with that, that these are inexpensive and that there's large businesses that are involved, let's say, in agriculture that say that's cheaper for me to use this toxin than to do something organic? I mean, I'm just, I'm mean, again, I'm just, this, I mean, when you got my head buzzing now. Um, I, think the, I think chemical companies should answer these questions for themselves. Okay. Well, I can see that there is the the need for the advocacy um, group that you mentioned, and I'm wondering if you can tell us the name of the advocacy group again and how people can get in contact with it. Because if there's people out there sitting with Parkinson's or have a family member, I hope you think about joining this group, and maybe we can do that march on Washington. Yeah. So the best consequence, I think, of the action, the book that uh, Michael and I wrote, Ending Parkinson's Disease, available on Amazon. is the formation of a global grassroots organization called the PD Avengers, uh, founded by three outstanding individuals, uh, Larry Giffords, uh, Sonia Mather, and Tim Haig, all of whom who have Parkinson's disease, all have refused to let the disease define themselves and are uh, formed a global grassroots organization that has 5,000 members from 80 plus countries. Uh, you can just go to pdavengers.com. Michael and I are both members, but again, this is an organization led by people with the disease who are trying to uh, have their voices heard and uh, bring about a change in the way we view, uh, care for, and prevent this debilitating disease. All right. That's going to lead me to, I guess, I'm going to a little segue. I don't know, Michael, is there anything more you want to say before I kind of go to an, another topic about Parkinson's? Well, I just want to, you know, tell you that when when you started the broadcast today you asked us what was present for us and you know what's present for me is amplification of voices you know and if we keep amplifying we keep summating and you know it is you said you know when's it going to stop you know and we're ray and i are scientists you know we didn't get into this you know advocacy because you know that this was what we did we're in it because you know, we take care of these people with the diseases. We're both neurologists, and so is Boston Bloom in the Netherlands. We care, care about our planet. We care about the people that are here, and we see something that's real. You know, I mean, if it was up to us, we'd probably be in our laboratories, but it's time for us to raise our voices and amplify. And Larry Gifford and Tim Haig and Sonia Mator and that group, that they, they that's the group, the groups of people that, that, um, that are going to lead us. I, I believe that there will be the groups that will lead us. Uh, to that inflection point. Okay, so that leads me to, since you care for people with Parkinson's, if we can have a little bit of a conversation right now about what are the treatments um, that are promising on the horizon? Um, Are there advancements in care that we need to know about as well that maybe people are sitting out there not knowing um, some of the advancements that's happening in the treatment of Parkinson's. So which one would you, you would like to jump into that water first? Michael, you want to do treatments and I'll do care? Yeah. So, um, you know, again, the, the joy of writing a book with, with Ray and Bastian is, is, um, is having all the different points of view. And, um, and, and certainly this is an area as the medical director for the Parkinson's Foundation um, and doing blogs and, and also running a science laboratory myself. It's, it's great. And one of the things that we, 
did a number of years ago was we wrote that book, 10 Secrets to a Happier Life. And secret number 10 is always ask your doctor or your team, we always talk about team, what's new, okay? Always that, that should be a question that you have each time. And it is, um, it is interesting to see, you know, kind of where the field is going. Uh, we wrote about in the book that still the single best treatment for Parkinson remains levodopa and that's dopamine replacement. And that, that is 50 years old. So another reason why we need to increase that investment, we need an operation warp speed to move things forward. we got to increase the funnel of the number of things coming. I'm particularly excited, however, about the science, you know, coming from our laboratories and from others. And these include things uh, on the range of personalized medicine gene therapies, understanding genes, understanding light and how light and genetics, you know, cross in, in a field called optogenetics that can help us to direct different therapies, all sorts of things going on with the gastrointestinal tract, the stomach, the intestines, the GI, the diet, and the microbiome, all sorts of really cool mind-blowing things that you can do in the laboratory. And we're starting to understand more about how that could be applied about how inflammation and the immune system is being used. And guess what? There's even vaccines now for Parkinson. We're not sure uh, how they're going to work in terms of, you know, will they um, improve the symptoms, slow the disease, or lead to a personalized treatment or even a cure-based, you know, approach. But thinking through, there's a whole bunch of new drug targets, new vaccines and new things. And so it all comes down to helping folks to understand, keep asking what's new, keep signing up for clinical trials. We need to increase the funnel of the number of things, you know, we're, we're probably a, a factor of 10 or 15 less of funded of what we need to, to move this uh, along quicker. And there'll be three buckets, Elaine. And I always talk to, you know, um, patient groups a lot all over the world. It's been one of the the great um, joys of my life is the, is the advocacy and getting out of the lab uh, with the Parkinson's Foundation. And the three buckets are we need to develop powerful symptomatic treatments for people who exist today, who have the, the disease today. We need to slow the disease down. That's the second bucket. Bucket two, slow it down, you know, affect the disease. Bucket three, personalized therapies, or maybe even on some of the gene uh, causes of Parkinson. Maybe we could even start talking about the C word and cure somewhere down the road, but we've got a long way to go. And so, Ray, you're going to talk about the care. Yes. So uh, Michael said uh, in, in my waiting room, you could see 85 year olds. Uh, I don't have any waiting rooms. Um, so uh, <laughs> I've been seeing patients via telemedicine since uh, exclusive uh, since 2013. So oh, just wow. like, you know, we're doing this uh, by Zoom, um, you know, uh, you can see patients via uh, telemedicine. And not only can you see them in satellite clinics or in hospitals, but you can see them in their homes and their natural environments. Uh, you can see, you know, do they have what their social support is or what's lacking? Uh, you can visit, meet their pets. Uh, you can see them in various stages of dress and undress. <laughs> um, so you get a sometimes a much better feel uh, for them, and you can do it without them having to risk uh, getting COVID, uh, for example. So I think that's a very powerful way of providing care um, uh, to people with uh, Parkinson's disease. And in the United States, that was only really enabled because Medicare the federal program for older Americans uh, relax its reimbursement around uh, telemedicine. We need to make sure that those temporary re relaxations are made permanent uh, by Congress uh, in the coming years. Um, that'd be a huge political issue. 
So, Ray, I have another question for you. And, and you know, you, you reveal something that maybe you didn't intend to, but that both of your parents are psychiatrists. And, of course, when as you both are talking about, about Parkinson's and also the different kinds of symptomology that can and being degenerative and how that impacts a person's sense of self, how that impacts their family. Could you address, I mean, I'm, Ray, you don't have to be the only one to answer. Michael can, can answer this too. But what are the, the, the psychological um, um, fallouts from, from having this kind of condition? So many people with Parkinson's are quite resilient, but the disease doesn't just affect the circuits of the brain that are responsible for movement. They affect other circuits of the brain that are responsible for mood and anxiety. So it doesn't just affect the neurotransmitter dopamine affects other chemicals in the brain. So about 40% of people with Parkinson's have depression, about 40% have anxiety. And we don't think they're depressed because they have Parkinson's or they're anxious because they have Parkinson's. We think that those circuits are being affected just like the circuits that are causing tremor are being affected. Um, and these, these circuits, uh, just like the tremors are treatable. So is the depression and anxiety. So if you have depression or you have anxiety and you have Parkinson's disease, you should be uh, talking to your clinicians about what are effective uh, treatments. And then I and know so, Michael. Can I just ask? And so are, have multimodal treatments like medication, you know, let's say exercise, behavioral kinds of things, have all of those help um, mindfulness, relaxation te- techniques, are those all in the, in the bucket of, of, of uh, treatments that can be helpful? Yeah, so uh, Michael and our colleague, Boss Bloom, are both huge advocates of multidisciplinary care. And uh, in addition to effective medications, you know, exercise uh, can not only per- decrease your risk of ever developing disease, but if you have Parkinson's disease, Numerous studies have demonstrated the benefits of exercise, including for depression and anxiety. Yes. In addition to the motor features of disease, uh, I routinely recommend that my patients, if they can exercise at least an hour a day. And I always say, if I had the disease, I would exercise two hours a day, just huge amounts of uh, uh, studies coming out, demonstrating its value and suggesting that exercise can release growth factors in the brain that can protect the remaining nerve cells and the brains of people with uh, Parkinson's. Wow. Okay. So, so Michael, would you like to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll just say something for the people listening that, that might not be obvious. And the, the pearl to take home is that this can be a very disabling disease, but guess what? It's usually not the motor issues, the tremor, the stiffness, and the slowness that drive the worst quality of life, the disability. It's usually the non-motor features, which drive it much more. Depression, anxiety, and demoralization. And demoralization is one that we've, mm. we've talked about. We had um, written another uh, book recently about living with Parkinson. And, and, and we talked about this idea that one in six people one in five to one in six people get demoralized with the disease. And this is what happens with chronic diseases. And it's not their fault. And it doesn't always have to have depression associated with it or anxiety associated with it. We need to do a better job of recognizing and treating. And that's one of the reasons why we've advocated so hard, even in the Lancet article, we advocated for the, the patient, the person with the disease is the sun, and we should, you know, orbit around the person and we should be getting these people services, the services that they need. We should use inpatient facilities when we need to, especially rehab facilities. This is done differently around the world. It depends on what resources you have associated. We should have more social workers. 
I always say I met the social worker in the hallway today and was showing somebody around and uh, Alana and I, and, and I always introduce and say, here's Alana. We have two social workers provided by philanthropy, you know, people, the grateful patients, because the system doesn't provide them, at least in our region. And if I could hire nine more, I would do it today. There's and Michael that, didn't say that need. because he knows I'm a social worker, did you, Michael? <laughs> you yeah, no, I read it. I've read your bio. I know that's true, but I say that anyway. And, and uh, I say it because it's true. And yeah. the families don't get enough support. And in fact, we teach our, our fellows, our, our docs in training, and all of the specialties that are training. Remember, we orbit around the patient. That means the doctor is not the most important person in the room. It's the, it's the person and the family. We teach them to focus just as much on the care partner, too. And in fact, if you look at the research, if you don't pay attention to the care partners, you won't do as well with the Parkinson. If you also look at the research our women with Parkinson disease are suffering more than men with Parkinson disease because they're not getting the care from the care partners. They're not, they're not mm. getting um, the, the amount of, of care and attention, you know, to the things that can make their life, you know, g- getting to doctor's visits, you know, getting the right medications, getting the right support and, and paying attention to, to all the, the non-motor symptoms. And so it isn't just, medicines and you know i'm a drug dealer right i can write prescriptions so so technically i'm a drug dealer it isn't it isn't just medicines it isn't just therapies it's the whole um network of people that need to be around the whole family system and people outside that the concentric circles outside the family system that we talk so much about well you know there's thank you so much for bringing this in and and um I think that it's important that as you both are talking that we look at this, yes, there's a medical condition, but there's a person and a family within that that condition that also needs to be attended to. So moving to the, I want to make sure we have time for these next two questions. Um, and that is, you said why, you, you both brought in the questions that you presented to me about um, the military and Silicon Valley. And why should people that have served in the military and people that, in Sil- in, that are in Silicon Valley be particularly, um, what, what do they need to know that you would like to illuminate? So veterans are at higher risk for Parkinson's disease uh, for three reasons. Um, the first is uh, they are likely been exposed to pesticides like Agent Orange. So during Vietnam, uh, the United States uh, dropped uh, lots of uh, herbicides uh, on Vietnam to remove the foliage and, to, and, and these, these things damaged crops and they damaged civilians and they damaged the veterans uh, who were uh, dropping these chemicals. Um, I don't know if many people know late General Colin Powell uh, actually died with Parkinson's disease and with multiple myeloma, both of diseases of which are linked to uh, Agent Orange. Uh, so veterans are increased risk because they've been exposed to pesticides. They've been exposed to this industrial chemical, this uh, chemical trichloroethylene, which is widely used in degreasing. So you can imagine military has lots of needs to decrease uh, tanks and jet engines and amphibious uh, vehicles. And these contaminate numerous uh, uh, toxic Superfund sites in the United States. And the third is that veterans are at increased risk for head trauma. I think 8 million veterans uh, have suffered uh, head trauma, which increases the risk of uh, Parkinson's disease. And sometimes the combination of, for example, head trauma and pesticides can amplify your risk more than uh, either one of those uh, exposures by themselves. So those are three reasons why veterans are at increased risk. They Over 100,000 veterans in the United States have a Parkinson's disease uh, currently. 
And what about Silicon Valley? So uh, Silicon Valley uh, is home to more of these toxic Superfund sites uh, than any other place uh, in the country. Uh, this chemical uh, trichloroethylene was used to clean off uh, consumer electronics, used to clean off uh, silicon wafers. And so there are 15 uh, Superfund sites along a seven-mile stretch of a, the 101 freeway uh, in Northern California. Uh, there's one from the two founding uh, companies of Silicon Valley, Fairchild Semiconductor and Intel uh, Corporation uh, have Superfund sites that have been contaminated with this chemical. And they underline the cur current headquarters of, of Google. Six people on the street uh, across from that Superfund site have developed Parkinson's disease. Another four have brain cancer because in addition to uh, increasing your risk of Parkinson's disease by about 500%, this chemical is a known carcinogen according to the Environmental Protection Agency and the World Health Organization. Well. Um, thank you. I grew up in Silicon Valley, so now I get. I think I'm probably one of those people at risk, um, and didn't move here till a few years ago. So um, I think it's just important that I know about this. So thank you for that. But I, our time has quickly left us, and I could talk to you both for another hour. So um, as we are getting ready to end the show today, and again, I, I hope that maybe I can have you back on again at a later time to further this conversation. But what is it as we leave? What, is there anything that's giving you hope about how we can grapple with what's going on with Parkinson's right now? Or any parting thought? It doesn't have to be about hope, but I'll start with Michael first and then go to Ray. Yeah, you know, I have tremendous hope. I have tremendous ambition. You know, I have a, a, a tremendous sense that, um, that we can do this. And where I would like to convince people is that we're going to do this and let's catalyze this reaction and let's go faster because, you know, if we don't, healthcare systems can collapse under the economics of all the hip fractures and think of all the suffering and the needless suffering of all the people. And we're just not going to be able to handle it if we keep pushing this down the road. And so okay. in my mind, let's amplify our voices amplify and, uh, and so let's catalyze Ray, the name of the book and how to get in touch with you guys in our uh, two minutes that we have left. Sure, the Go book ahead. is uh, Ending Parkinson's Disease. Uh, if you can't afford the, a copy of the book, we'll send one to you for free. Just email us at info at endingpd.org, info at endingpd.org. And if you have questions, stories, or anything else that you think we should know, we're all ears. We'd love to, we'd love to hear from you. Well, I just want to thank you both for being on the show. I have to tell you, Ray, when you just said that people could get it from free, I have tears in my eyes. If people could see me, they would know that. Because what I'm seeing is your generosity and your both of your commitments to try to really grapple with this horrible um, condition. And if we don't, the, the ramifications of this are so serious for the entire world. And, you know, I think about children and children being impacted by these pesticides and how that affects their future as well. And so I'm not surprised now that I have been educated so much in just a short period of time about um, how to prevent Parkinson's. So I am your fans, you two, I am on your team now. So, okay, you're going to hear from me again. And I want all of our listeners to go out and get this book and to remember what else is true. These two physicians are out there really letting people know about this and look, looking in your own world in terms of how we, how we can be advocates and to change those things that have meaning to us. And if we know someone with Parkinson's, 
um, if we ourselves have Parkinson's or now, you know, knowing that I'm growing up in Silicon Valley, that I'm at risk for developing Parkinson's, that we maybe join this organization and try to see if we can be part of that change. And maybe we'll have that march to, to Washington um, to amplify this message. So thank you both, Ray you, and Mike. Thank you. thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.